people that know me know that one of my biggest champion causes is bridging the gap between the 12-step community and the harm reduction community because we're losing so many people in that gap. And recovery has so many different forms. Um, and I, I'm seeing a, a big shift in the 12-step community to start to accept us. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. How's the desert? It's hot. It's already summer here. <laughs> we got spring before all you guys on the East Coast, but now we're getting summer first as well. Nice, nice. So Troy and me, we are really excited to have two harm reductionists on the show today. We have Albie Park and Jess Tilly coming from Western Massachusetts. What's up, guys? What's up? Hey. So both of you, I, I, I've met you in, you know, conference settings and the, the harm reduction community, and both of you are like a sort of tag team. And can you sort of outline for the listeners, like what your work in harm reduction is right now? And, you know, I do want to introduce the concept of a drug users union to the audience, which is an emerging thing here in the States that a lot of other countries do have. So yeah, I don't know where to start. What, what's, what's like no, priority number one for, for you two? Well, we could start with how we met because I think, and I'll give you a little quick background um, and then we'll talk about it more. Um, I got into harm reduction back in 1996 as an active chaotic user. And I, I personally didn't think that using drugs was wrong, but everybody in society was telling me that it was wrong. So I was that very at-risk drug user who used alone, um, was at risk for overdose literally every day until somebody introduced me to a needle exchange. And then I found my passion. I found the hill that I wanted to die upon. And this is where the religious zeal will come in. So I'll stop talking about that. Um, so essentially I got into, um, drug user organizing back in 1996 and had been all over the country, come back to Western Mass a couple of years ago and that's and found out that I was no longer qualified to work in a syringe exchange because I ran a drug users union and identified as a drug user. Um, so I was at a, a loss of what to do because harm reduction was my life. And that's where Albie came in and he can tell you the story about how he met me and how he got introduced to harm reduction out here um, because it's it's a, a pretty magical happening or meeting of the minds right yeah just calls me a unicorn in that um i've been in harm reduction for a good 20 years and nobody really knows who i am um and part of that is because you know i i cut my teeth um at the stonewall project which is a uh, a program originally founded for gay men or MSM who were using speed. Um, uh, and it was founded by Michael Siever. So uh, he was pretty much my mentor and it was a wonderful introduction. When I came to Western Massachusetts about four or five years ago, um, I was not sure exactly how to make friends. So um, <laughs> I just started showing up at the 
opioid task force meetings and I just kept on showing up. And that eventually got me sent to the International Conference in Montreal. And while I was at the conference, I was sort of like, you know, I do know what I'm doing. I do know what has to happen and I should really kind of jump in because people are dying and um, let's just recommit. And literally within um, two weeks, Jess and I met. Um, and uh, it started, our first real conversation was after uh, I, I was driving her home after a training on multiple loss and grief for people who are working in the field. Um, and from that point forward, the, the collaboration just started. Um, and it's been pretty uh, magical. And I think the reason why it has worked so well is because we're very clear that we are practicing harm reduction with each other. So um, we're very focused on trying to amplify uh, our energy, our power, our, our reach via collaboration. And that's at the, it, one of the core values of HRH is um, uh, amplifying power via collaboration. Mm -hmm. Can you sort of talk about what the content of these drug task force meetings were? Because I imagine that you two being full-fledged harm reductionists maybe came into a lot of drug war rhetoric, a lot of enforcement strategies, like what, what, what's going on at task forces right now? So it's, I'll, I'll say a little bit and then I'll be kind of, it's really interesting out in this area. And like, as Albi had mentioned, he was going to the task force meetings. I, I wasn't, but he was hearing my name everywhere. Um, and the reason I wasn't was it had, it had recently become a trend in this area to kind of bring one, you know, white middle-class educated person who identified with lived experience to the table and then promptly ignore them. Um, so I had been asked to come to a couple of task force coalitions and I just, I was in a very negative space around the community here, which, you know, was not helpful to me or, you know, people who, who use drugs. Um, we did, we started to go and what we were hearing was the basic, I mean, at one meeting we had a, a police officer run up to the front of the room and say like, don't forget fentanyl, if you touch it can kill you. And, um, you know, just people with the best intentions, but really horrible method. Uh, it, it essentially just became like a meeting about a meeting about a meeting. Uh, I think when the two of us came into the coalitions and we sit on an executive committee, we were able to amplify our voices and bring harm reduction, like real harm reduction into the room because now we were like, a, a, I don't want to say a dynamic duo, but we were able to, I mean, I, I or I want to say, like I believe Albie kind of gave me my voice back in a way because there, you know, just the way the community had reacted to, you know, harm reduction, like what I, what I truly believe harm reduction is. And, and again, this is the area that introduced me to harm reduction. And when I came back, it was so different. So um, I realized the only way we could get it back to the beauty that it used to be, the grassroots harm reduction was to not, not push back, but like Albie was saying, to collaborate and to be patient and to truly practice meeting people where they're at and educating. And so that's what these drug task forces are like. You know, a lot of it, what you see is pro-overdose prevention, anti-drug user or anti-drug use, which, you know, as you know, do not make good bedfellows. Um, 
he right. was. I just, I, I would say that, you know, first off, Western Massachusetts is a very broad geographic region. Um, and so there's that as, a, as just an issue of trying to um, have high quality harm reduction services. Um, it's, it's challenging. And the other piece is just that um, right now, at least, Western Mass has not been a real hotbed of harm reduction. Um, you know, what we joke a little bit, because uh, like our business card says that we are best practice uh, trainers and consultants. And really, the way I conceptualize it more clearly for myself is that we are harm reduction talent scouts. Um, so many people uh, that we've met are practicing harm reduction without knowing that it has a name. Um, and once we start talking, there's a, we, we, we can see the, the, the light bulbs of recognition going off and people understanding that, oh, there's something, there is already something that's happening. As far as the task force were concerned and, and the committees, you know, I think that in general, the level of understanding of what harm reduction is as a practice, as a, like, as a foundational practice is um, kind of typical for the rest of the country in the way that harm reduction has been sort of absorbed by uh, the nonprofit industrial complex and, um, and uh, public health in that uh, there's a lot of emphasis on the interventions, which are extremely important, but there's not a real strong understanding of how important it is to have connection with others. It's certainly there's not a lot of understanding of the idea that harm reduction is actually about empowering community, uh, building community, that's gone out the window. And instead it's about um, the, the, the emphasis on, again, because people want to save lives is, has been on Narcan and um, uh, overdose prevention and uh, distributing uh, clean works, which is fantastic. But what Jess and I have been really clear on from the beginning is that, um, it can be so much better. And I feel very privileged having come from San Francisco and having worked in what I consider a true harm reduction program and seeing what can happen mm -hmm. and understanding that here, there are many people that I'm working with who have never experienced really quality harm reduction. Um, they've never worked in it and they've never received services that way. So we're trying really hard to, to uh, elevate the practice in general. And what that means is um, we're very self-conscious of not alienating anybody um, and trying to just be sort of open and as just said in collaboration we're trying to meet people where they're at um, not just with with uh, participants um, but with the people with whom we're trying to build power it's natural to sort of want to, to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with somebody who you're not you know because there's so much passion around harm reduction and uh, in fact it doesn't work and the beauty of the system for us at least is that I know when Jess is working. Other people can't tell, <laughs> right? And I know Jess is working, and I know that uh, the best harm reduction interventions are invisible, right? And Jess is an incredible master at that. It's, uh, I've been, like, my jaw has been on the floor a couple times. The first time I saw her facilitate a group, I could not believe what she was doing. It was amazing. So. And again, that's, that's one of the things that lies at the foundation of our work is that we have tremendous respect for each other. Um, and we are, we consistently focus on trying to build each other up. And I should clarify that Albie meant people can't tell when I'm working in a room. 
not just like is just working. Was just, <laughs> his tea just came out of his nose. Just like is just sleeping until six o'clock every day. Like he meant in a room, and uh, it is. It's it is one of my great talents, and it it comes from again having amazing mentors in harm reduction. You know, Monique Tula was one of my first mentors as a when she was a baby harm reductionist as a health educator here at uh, in Northampton and. Um, Luciano Colonna, Tim Harrington, I, you know, the HRC crew in the 90s, I just had these phenomenal mentors that showed me that, you know, power over is not what we do, low threshold, zero threshold, and, you know, even the best intentions of redirection sometimes in a room can cause power over. And, you know, also I should mention, like in the task force, the reason I always sit next to LB is because I am the toe-to-toe, and I learned that, you know, our worst adversaries can become our strongest allies. So I, uh, I have this character defect where my face shows my emotions being, you know, shanty Irish all the time. Um, so LB sits next to me when kicking distance, if he can tell, you know, as my hands start to, to clench. Um, you know, I, I could go on about task force. I was, I was going to share what I mean about being a, the outed drug user in the room. We had a, the police chief asked a question and it was a question that, you know, was meant for the, you know, it was, it, anybody could have answered it, but she was looking for an academic answer. And, right. and I answered the question and, and I, I know I answered it correctly and, you know, with confidence. And she looks around the room and asks the question again. And, and I, I forget who answered it again, but it wasn't even near correct, but she accepted that. And it, and that's the kind of like, it's not even internalized stigma on my part. That's the kind of behavior I aim to change because again, this is somebody who is well-intentioned and supports harm reduction, but is still, I believe, learning, learning and, and still trying to dispel the myths that, you know, society and, and no offense, but the media has created around drug users and drug use. Right. And so what I can say very honestly and very clearly that, you know, although the, you know, there are times when I go, Ooh, I don't know about that, you know, it, it, that's my inside voice. Um, uh, what I have seen is, is, as a whole, I've seen the community start to move in the right direction. Um, right. And that's not just because of us. It's because there are many people that are on the ground that are trying to do stuff. Um, but it's sort of like, I, I feel as if since we formed HRH, we're trying to figure out what the magic soup is, you know, um, <laughs> to, for us to be able to, um, move forward and to essentially um, manifest more power and create more energy and uh, keep things going. And it's feeling like it's starting to shift. Um, uh, it, and it, it feels very subtle, but um, Jess has noticed it. I was talking to a longtime activist down in Springfield um, last night, and she uh, also said that she's sensing some shift around a lot of harm reduction issues, so, which is fantastic. So we're, we're pleased yeah. <laughs> from that perspective. And, you know, it's again, I, I just want to make clear that like our colleagues on the ground are, um, have been really encouraging to us, even when, um, because of the nature of their positions, they can't say certain things publicly or right. it's, it's really clear that they're on our side. And so, um, uh, some faces that one would expect to be more public in this area are in political positions where they can't do that. And so we're not, <laughs> right. so we can, and we do as much as we can. 
or, or even when I speak, you know, I don't want to say negatively, but you hear the anger in my voice about like local exchanges. It's not the people at the exchanges. It's not the program. It's the policies that have been put in place by Department of Public Health that, you know, it's, it's disheartening and frustrating because in the end of the day, it's our community of, you know, the most directly impacted people that are being hurt. Uh, you know, like I've seen, you know, like when, when programs are heading back to one for one retractable syringes, like I, I, you hear, I, I can't even speak, like I'm literally tongue tied. Um, it, we have a, this year in Massachusetts, we had a um, huge uptick, like what we call an outbreak in HIV cases. Uh, that should not be happening. We're up to what, 32 syringe exchanges in this? Um, there's definitely like a disconnect happening between programs and uh, providers and the community. And, you know, that's part of, uh, you know, when I, um, when I talk about NEUU, part of what we strive to fix and what Albi, I give Albi the credit essentially created with Harm Reduction Works and bringing that to the community. Um, it's, I, I've been saying a lot lately, like I'm not, I'm a very like, as, as you get to know me better, I'm a very cynical, jaded harm reductionist who has, right. a, I, I, I don't know any harm <laughs> reductionists that are not cynical and jaded in some way. So, <laughs> but, but uh, that's my prickly hedgehog exterior, but underneath I'm soft and fuzzy and sensitive. And in, for the first time in a long time, I'm filled with hope and excitement for where harm reduction is heading and the new generation that we have coming right. up. And there's so much energy. There's so many, you know, as LB said, we're kind of like talent scouts, which people have said, Ooh, that sounds kind of snarky and, and, you know, arrogant. And it's not, it's like, I, you know, you're either cut out for this work or you're not. And I've seen more people come into this movement in the past couple of years that are just, I hate to use this term, but they're superstars. They're, and I want to be able to leave them a legacy the way that I, you know, a legacy of knowledge and experience so that they can carry on this work. And we've experienced so much loss and grief in the last, I mean, now we're heading into almost two years in our own community, never mind. And when I say our own community, our harm reduction community, never mind what we're losing of our participants. Um, that I don't know if I could have handled it as a young harm reductionist coming in, yet these individuals are just pushing forward and I want to be able to leave them with what I was given. Because if we don't continue that, that true grassroots part of harm reductionist, like harm reduction philosophy is going to be lost. And I believe that's a lot of what we do with HRH4132. Like, like I, when I said recreating, it's almost like putting a new spin, bringing it back to its roots, but adding on to it. Mm -hmm. what, what we feel, you know, we, we talk about love and we talk about truly, I, I can't tell you how many people I hear say, you know, it's about meeting people where they're at. And you, when you ask them what that means, it's kind of like a blank look comes over their face. So like meeting them on the street, meeting them at their house. And I'm like, no, what does it mean to truly meet somebody emotionally, physically, like, like sense of self out the window. This is not about you. This is about them. Um, and it's, I, I hate to say it, it's usually the older generation that I see that blank look and I'm seeing more in the younger, like, like they're just so like full of energy and vigor. Like 
this is what I want to do. And, you know, it's not egotistical. It's about like my friends are dying. I want it to stop. I don't want people I love to lose their friends. And um, yeah, sorry. I could go on about that for like <laughs> five podcasts. I, I want to ask you about this concept of a drug users union, because in the United States, this is kind of a really foreign concept. I mean, unions in general are kind of foreign concepts sometimes. But why would you want to create a drug users union? What uh, structure or help or power does that give you? And, and, and how do people who are listening to this program, if they want to start their own, what steps should they start to take? Ah, I have the answers for you. <laughs> um, actually, in, you know, unfortunately, like I said, Louise Vincent is leaving for Portugal and couldn't make it today. And hopefully we can get her and I together. Um, Louise runs the uh, Piedmont chapter of USU, which stands for Urban Survivors Union. And together, Louise and I co-chair, we, we took a um, team-based feminist-led approach to creating a, an alliance of drug user unions nationally because we've never had that in the United States. Um, again, it seems like a new concept in the United States. It's actually been here since the early 90s. Um, actually, no, I'd say maybe 95, 96. Johnny's, there was, there was a person out here in Massachusetts that started a, a drug users union, Massachusetts drug users union in about 95. Um, it was very short-lived. He moved. I kind of came in like two months after him. I was at the second annual harm reduction conference, which again, will give away my age. And I met a woman who has now since passed who introduced me to drug user organizing. And, you know, having this Irish pro-union background, I'm like, that's amazing. Like, I love unions. Um, didn't even realize at the time how important it was to have a collection of drug users' voices. And the reason I mentioned that is when I came back from the conference to Massachusetts, full of like, I'm going to do this, you know, boots to the ground. And I looked at my fellow drug users and they're like, are you insane? We can't talk openly about our drug use. Like I'll lose my job. I'll lose my kids. I'll lose my house. And I'm like, this is exactly why we need a union. Like drug use is an inherent basic human right. Um, you know, our drug policies have been put into place out of racism, classism, you know, like, I mean, I'm not going to give a hit. I, I, you guys don't need a history of, you know, mankind and drug use, but um, whatever reasons we use drugs, whether it's to quell emotional pain, to feel good, to take care of physical pain, to block out trauma. Like I, I always say trauma was my gateway drug, um, which is what led me to use, you know, heroin was my first drug. It was the first time that I felt normal, that I could function in society. Um, Again, that led me to totally chaotic use, and it took years to temper and figure out where drugs did fit into my life. Um, psychedelics have allowed me to reset my mind when it needs to be reset. I, I talk about DMT being one of the most wonderful drugs out there. Like, if we could use it to, I've seen people cure heroin addiction with DMT. Um, I've again, you know, so, anyways, I'm, I'm going off topic. So, um, NEUU was actually the final phase of what started as the Massachusetts Drug Users Union. And as I said, as I got that first group of five people in a room, and I tell the story quite often, we tried to think of like, what do we all have in common right now? What we all had in common is we all had abscesses that we couldn't go to the emergency room and have treated because we were treated like second class citizens. 
Um, and, you know, actually one of my friends was at the point of almost having an amputation because the abscess was so bad. So it was like, this is how we fight back. We drop letters, we go into the emergency room, we demand equal treatment. And that's exactly what we did. And we were given um, a chance to speak to the CEO of the hospital, which allowed us to start creating drug user sensitivity classes in the emergency room, uh, which totally shifted treatment. Um, I replicated that model when I went to Cambridge. And sadly enough, when I left Northampton, that model didn't really stay. But um, it, was, it was like a win for us. And you know, it showed that together, our voices had meaning. And when we looked at the major topics that affected us, again, housing, um, women especially, women injection drug users are just ostracized in this community. Um, you know, you can't even be considered a woman. I, I had a police officer once say to me, she's not a woman, she's a junkie. And that I carried and was one of the reasons I wanted to create a union. What NEUU was born in, in 2010 out of Cambridge, again, doing the same thing. I, I brought a group of participants together when I was the overdose prevention coordinator for uh, Cambridge Needle Exchange. And the, the shift in energy was so different from the mid-90s where people were fed up and they were angry and they were like, we want our voices heard and we want to combat stigma and stereotype. Um, there were only four unions in the United States at the time and they were all very uh, male-dominated. And those men are all friends of mine, so I'm not talking negatively about them. And I was the only woman leading a union until Louise had actually reached out and tried to find me. And then she ended up um, you know, joining, um, joining with, with uh, Shiloh Murphy, who's a good friend of mine under USU. And then Louise and I came together and we're like, hey, how come we're doing all the work and the men are getting all the credit? And even in my own union, like we have eight chapters. Um, our newest chapter is, which one is one I'm so proud of because it, it's the uh, Boston chapter of New England Users Union because these are the most marginalized members. I believe every member except one or two is homeless, still shows up, has yeah. worked with Jennifer Flynn, um, does it without a stipend, has, I mean, they're learning about how to speak at the state house. Um, that's another thing with, with NEUU, we create leaders. My, It's been amazing to watch. It's been absolutely stunning to watch. And in fact, where I, this is where I first saw Jess do her invisible interventions with, at, at the very first meeting. And it was really curious to me because there was somebody who was observing um, who had invited us in to, to help start the union. And I could tell that he didn't understand what was happening. Like he kept on wanting the meeting to actually start when in fact it had already started. Um, and uh, I was aware of what she was doing. And uh, all, she, all she was doing on surface was just kind of kicking it with people. But in fact, what she started to do was she started to connect people to each other. She started connecting issues to people. She started to connect um, uh, uh, solutions to those issues as a possibility. Just as a positive, she just, she introduced things very gradually. It was magnificent to watch. And the resulting energy that came out of those first meetings was astonishing. And to see some of the transformations that have been happening for some of those members has been actually really quite remarkable. So, um, you know, she, the good thing is that 
working with Jess is what I've come to see is that Jess, Jess tends to leave a harm reduction trail behind her <laughs> that people can get on and start marching with. And um, uh, so it's again, I mean, watching her found the Boston Users Union was really such a privilege for my, my own education in harm reduction. I do want to point out, uh, I recently was attacked and said that, you know, the person said, I can't imagine anything worse for recovery than a drug users union. He said, there might be one more thing out there that's worse, but I can't think of it right now. And at last count, it actually dropped a few percentages, but it's 64% it's of our members are in long-term absence-based recovery, but still identify as drug users. And the reason for that, and people that know me know that one of my biggest champion causes is bridging the gap between the 12-step community and the harm reduction community because we're losing so many people in that gap. And recovery has so many different forms. Um, and I, I'm seeing a, a big shift in the 12-step community to start to accept us. Um, you know, myself, because I was MAT, and after six years exposed that in the 12-step community, I was literally run out of that community um, because I was sponsoring people and how could I because, you know, I'm, I'm on methadone. And so, you know, luckily I didn't die, but I could have, and because I, I came damn well close. Um, but I don't want that to happen to anybody else. And what in the midst of this apocalypse, this, this overdose apocalypse that I say has been going on for decades and decades, but now has hit close to home for too many, um, we can't afford to ostracize any of our allies. And I see it happening every day. And like Albie mentioned earlier, the best we can do is connect and collaborate. And um, I'm thankful that the people that are kind of like the superstars or the heads of the recovery movement have been, you know, people like Ryan Hampton have been willing to work with us, to work with drug users units, which to me is, is amazing. Um, you know, when, when it, it goes from being told by the recovery community that I'm destroying their community to somebody who's saying, hey, let's work together and let's, let's incorporate both of our concepts and models and, and just keep people alive. I mean, to me, that's the most beautiful thing that could come out of a union such as that. Yeah, I think when it, when it comes to the, the media side of this, journalists often frame harm reduction in opposition to quote unquote recovery or abstinence-based, and they're positioned as these two warring factions. Mm -hmm. And I think that only reinforces the, the problems that, that, that you're speaking to. And when someone like, like Ryan Hampton or someone from the recovery community actually reaches out or extends a hand and says, no, like harm reduction is on the same continuum as we are, right? Like, like it's, it's not uh, mutually exclusive. It's all like to to your point in the H four H or H R H four one three, which is hedgehog uh, harm reduction or harm reduction hedgehog. I mean, basically, like what you're saying is like we need to get harm reduction out of this silo. And you're talking about like like the silo of public health, but there's also like the sort of silo or sort of harm reduction being like on the fringe somehow when really it's like harm reduction is like the sort of bedrock principle 
of so much of it. It's like it, it all is the foundation and in 12 step uh, meetings and the ideology of that, like people don't know it, but harm reduction is being practiced, right? Exactly. I recently read Dee Dee Stout's book, The Kicking and Screaming into 12 I can't remember what, exactly what the title is. Sorry, Dee Dee. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but uh, she has a section in there in the, uh, about the harm reduction roots of AA, which was actually really fascinating. Oh, yeah. It was really, yeah. really fascinating. So, um, yes, it absolutely has not. And, and, you know, the thing is, that whole issue of people being run out of meetings for being on MAT or whatever, you know, one of the things that I am very clear on is that, you know, there's the program and there are the people in the program and those are very right. different. And that, you know, as far as I know, nowhere in the literature does it say that um, I have to tell somebody whether or not they're being, uh, whether or not they're clear and sober or not. I, I never have read that that's my position um, as a member of a 12-step organization. Um, and at this point, given what's happening when I do trainings, I'm pretty clear with people. It's like, you know, if you're telling people on MAT or OAT that they're, they're not clean and sober for whatever reason, you need to understand that that encourages people to actually drop their methadone or whatever, and, and it puts them at an incredibly high risk for overdose. And so at this point, you're killing people, and I really think you need to make an amends for that. Yeah. Uh, and when I say that, I'm not trying to be snarky. I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to preserve exactly what I mean or what is meant by amends, you know? And um, I think it's really significant, but that's one way in which things can go uh, and bridge. And, and mind you, I, I think uh, it's really, really clear. It comes from both sides. Harm reductionists right. like, are willing to bite the heads off of people in 12 step and vice versa. And um, there's a lot of trauma. Yeah. Um, among people who have, I, I, I compare it to like being raised Catholic in the church. There's this survivor's trauma of coming out of the program and having a lot of anger. And again, like Albie said, it's not the program. Louise came up with a great saying. It was like, the program will save your life. The people will kill you. And, you know, and I, I hate to say it, it's, it, it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm using NA rhetoric, a rhetoric you know, principles before personalities, but um, we, we recently had a conference call for women, women, like re it's redirecting our narrative, but in the end, all the women on that call started to share their horrific stories about NA, and it was breaking my heart because that's not the direction I wanted the call to go, but we had to give space for people to talk about their pain and their grief. The problem or not the problem, I'd say the solution I see is, okay, we bring that grief to the, sur the, the surface, let it putrefy and let it go. Right. And, and now how do we move on and how do we collaborate? Right, it's the wrong conflict. The, the conflict between harm reduction or, and absence-based stuff, is a, it's a false conflict and it's a waste of energy because what we need to be working on helping people survive. Right. Yeah, and, and I think what's really unique about where the harm reduction community is situated is precisely giving people who don't necessarily find that the 12-step AA thing or NA is, is like, you know, in their bag, that there is a community of people that 
can basically function the same way a meeting functions. And I, and I, and I think that's what uh, personally for, for me drew me into harm reduction is being exposed to, to 12 step stuff in my own life and finding that, you know, because I can drink on occasion and don't really consider myself a quote alcoholic by any means, like, what am I doing in these meetings, right? Like, like my, my problem was opioids and I never had a craving for alcohol. I don't care about it, but my, like, what, I think it's a lot about identity and having mm-hmm. someone identify as, like, a purely abstinent sort of person fits very neatly into the 12-step world. But for people in the gray area, the all or nothing thinking drives them out. And if they don't have a, any other community, then they're sort of alone. And like, if it weren't for Twitter, I don't know yeah. who, who the fuck I'd be talking to. Yeah. And, and that's, that's actually one of the reasons why we started harm reduction works. Yeah. This is um, a perfect place to talk about this. Yeah. So harm reduction works is, is actually, it comes out of my um, final culminating master's project from San Francisco State. Um, And I originally conceived it as um, a a self-replicating self-help group for um, gay men using methamphetamine. Um, That was some 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago that um, I wrote this. And then after Jess and I met, for some reason it like, it popped into my head. I was like, oh yeah, I did this thing 10 years ago. I wonder if it's any good. So I just gave it to her and said, and, and was like, read this. Tell me if you think this will fly. Um, and she did. And she actually said, this is pretty good. So um, I started looking at it. And it took us a while to kind of get it off the ground. But originally, it was conceived. It, Arm Reduction Works was conceived really simply as an alternative for people to 12-step. Um, uh, and I have to give kudos to Terry Morris at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation um, because when I worked at the foundation, um, she had st- I was uh, I was on the treatment side, um, and, and she was on the uh, more of the syringe access side, and um, she started a book group using Over the Influence by Jeannie Little and, and Pat Denning. Um, that was one of the most successful groups that we had there. So that was the original concept. I was just going to do essentially reproduce her group. Um, but when I called it a book group, a book club, book group, whatever, it got confusing to people and they weren't sure when they could join, if they could join, et cetera. And it's been fascinating. We haven't even been going for two months. Um, but the first meeting was really interesting in that the thing that registered most for both of us was the astonishing amount of pain that was in our community. Um, and that there was really kind of no place to take that pain. And when I said, you know, I'm talking about the, the direct result of, of overdose death, um, it was it was it was really really humbling, and it made really clear the need for something like this. Because up to this point, if I met somebody and we had a conversation, and it was really clear that harm reduction was something that would work for them, the only thing I could invite them to would be to another task force meeting, right? And so what became really clear is that we actually needed to have a place to bring people, right? And so it's been really refreshing to have people come in and, um, 
express their ambivalence about what their behavior is, about what their consequences are, whether or not they want to continue to, to drink or use or whatever, the, whatever it is. And parents who have and lost pa children. Parents who have lost children. It, it's just been a, a really wonderful amalgamation of people because uh, because we were just starting, it is an open group, so everyone is invited. Um, and that includes also people who are already working in harm reduction, like syringe access sites, because the number of deaths that they're saying is devastating, right? Um, so it was really clear that something, we, we started to feel a niche. But the other piece that's really interesting um, was in, because I originally was conceived of this as sort of being an alternative 12 step groups, one of the things that I made sure to include at the very end was the request for any harm reduction related announcements. It took me a couple of weeks to realize that that simple thing, uh, that simple request for harm reduction related announcements was the beginnings or the basis of organizing using HRW as an organizing tool as well. And it's been, really kind of fascinating to watch. I think the, the, the implications for what this could be um, are enormous. Um, and ironically, I feel as if um, some of the folks who are working in harm reduction right now in our area, it, it, like, well, let me back, back that. Not just in harm reduction, but in social services in general who claim that they want to know more about what harm reduction is and how to implement it, don't get what we're doing. And I take responsibility for that in the sense that um, I get what the implications are, um, but clearly somehow I'm not articulating those well enough in some ways. Otherwise, I feel like the folks would start to show up. Um, I'm hoping that will change. Um, I have a reason to believe it will. I think this podcast might help. But <laughs> there's also, like how I mentioned earlier, there's two types of harm reductionists. There's the nine to five harm reductionists, which I understand. And then there's people like ourselves where this is what we live and breathe. And so I understand somebody going, it's another meeting. I don't want to go. But it's also like when there's a, a baseline of knowledge and there's a desire that's been expressed to learn more. And there's so few resources. Um, I mean, even this model itself has picked up like national recognition. And we've been a little hesitant because we don't want it to grow like a weed. And I, I think it's important to mention, I don't think Albie mentioned that when I say he created this. It isn't just a meeting where people walk in and sit down and start talking. This is a fully scripted meeting. Um, it has like, you know, opening, closing. It has what I call the alternative promises because it's a, the we know and we believe, which are just, I mean, we can, if, with Albie's permission, we can send them to you afterwards. I mean, it's, it's astounding. I mean, when, when I actually sat, and this is what I started talking about earlier, like I'm a very jaded person. I'm not very woo-woo magi. And I was like, this is magic happening in this room to watch a mother who's just lost her daughter connecting with a mother who has a daughter who's very high risk. And, you know, a woman who lost her nephew the week or the, the summer before uh, coming together and saying, or, you know, I think even more critical or, you know, or not even critical, but like central to the meeting is, you know, the mid twenties woman in recovery who is questioning being in 12 step and is sick of her friends dying and wants came back on the second meeting and said, I was almost disappointed last week. I thought I was going to be given action, being able to take action. And I wanted something tangible. Um, and of course I'm like, Oh, but we are doing that. Just, just wait. And now she's a core member and she's, you know, had never even heard of harm reduction. 
And, and now she's like full of vigor. Like, what can I do? How do I change this? Where do I go? Who do I speak to? Do I go to the state house? Do I create an outreach group? You know, like, so, and then, you know, that's blossomed out to, you know, where one woman introduced Albie had Albie over her Passover introduced her to a young group of kids uh, who want to get involved. Um, and like, this has never been done anywhere in the United States. And the potential for the model to take off, I mean, for what we've seen in just one community is, is breathtaking. I mean, um, the shift again that we're seeing around here, I was speaking in Nashville about safe consumption sites and Ironically, there was a woman from a very large organization here in Western Mass who came running up, put, like pretty much pushed everybody aside and said, I want you to come into you know, like our shelter and teach harm reduction. I want you to, you know, rewrite our policies. And we just met with her last week, so it's actually happening. So, um, and one of the main things we mentioned to her is here's this meeting we're doing. Why don't you bring it to the shelter? Uh, and I really want her to come because I think when we just say it, it sounds like just yet another self-help group. But to right. see it actually happening is nothing short, and I'm going to say it again and gag, nothing short <laughs> of, of magical. I mean, that, that sounds like an amazing thing, and it sounds like it's the birth of AA in a lot of ways. It's people really, really needing... To, to get their needs met and not having any place to do it, and especially when the sort of mainstream medical community has like relegated uh, substance use disorders to just like this uh, siloed off area that's like a, a criminalized medical condition, somehow a brain disease at the same time. Like it's just, there's no, there's no community for people. And, and I think creating that community is, is critical, especially right now. And, and one thing that sort of pops into my head is when you talk about parents coming, like I think about how successful Mothers Against Drunk Driving became. And it seems like parents here uh, in, in this overdose emergency can like amass a lot of power. Like, like I wonder how many, like if there's any organizing going on among parents who've, who've lost their kids, like I know there's families for sensible drug policy, which is a big one, but it seems like if there is a sort of mass movement of parents that could like really change the game. Well, I could say, I, I mean, there are, we have groups like grass, we have a lot learn of to cope. Yeah. learn to cope, but for, and I'm, I'm not going to say her name, even though she is very outspoken publicly, uh, the mother in our group, when her daughter died, her daughter died on her birthday, um, had been in absence-based recovery and went out and used on her birthday and died in the home. Um, and her mother's angry, not angry about her daughter, I mean, obviously angry about her, but angry about um, the fact that she was lied to, like methadone will get your daughter high and the broken treatment system, the fact that there were safe consumption sites she didn't realize they existed and that we had had a bill that got shot down in Massachusetts. She, in fact, she connected with the safe house people in, in Philadelphia, Philadelphia yeah. and then met us. And I was like, Hey, you know, we have a, a I hate saying task force, um, but we, you know, we're, we're working, working on, on it. it. <laughs> so it's like, but her voice is so powerful. Here's a mother who never knew any of this existed and said, 
I know for a fact my daughter would have used this space. And there are plenty of other mothers. When we released, uh, when Louise and I released Reframe the Blame, the amount of parents that came forward and said, I would love to speak, I'd love to be your spokesperson. My son or daughter died and their best friend was charged with murder um, or vice versa. Like, you know, my son was my daughter, my husband. Um, and those are the voices. It's not so much, and again, even it could be the wife, it could be the, the, you know, the lover, but it's really the mothers. And that's why going back to the drug user organizing, we really decided to make it a feminist led again, because women, whether women in this country are just, again, set when we have a, I'm not, I'm not even going to go there without our presidency, but, you know, we've been demoted and, you know, even our, so many drug laws were created to go after the, you know, the women in the house that was selling drugs, you know, like. And pregnant women, especially. Oh my, oh my God, God, pregnant women. <laughs> Check out the media toolkit because we talk about that. Um, but exactly. And so, you know, mothers that are stepping forward against induced homicide laws against, you know, or, or for safe consumption sites um, against bad drug policy, I think is going to be one, I, our strongest allies in the future in, in ending this epidemic. Right, right. And one of the things that we've talked about a lot, as a for instance, is that the way I describe harm reduction historically has been like this inward facing circle. Um, and over time, that circle has gotten larger. And only occasionally do we bring out the machine guns to like do the circular firing squad to each other, um, thankfully. But one of the things that I've been really clear on and what I keep on visualizing and thinking about is uh, having people turn around and invite people in. And what does that mean? What does that look like? How are people who may not necessarily have a direct relationship with drugs or anybody who does drugs but are really concerned about this, how do they enter into this? And um, so, you know, the, and that's one of the reasons why in HRH we've been pushing the whole, uh, trying to push beyond the public health silo, because one of the things that I've realized even just going and doing trainings, let alone being in trainings, is a sort of like the way that, that the trainings are done in the sense of like, here's a, here's a table and there's a microphone and then it goes down the table. Is, is it, that's a purely arbitrary choice and it does not have to work that way. Um, and so what I'm mostly interested is like, uh, I think it was Tony Cade Barbara said, Barbara said that um, the, the, the role of the writer is to make the revolution irresistible. Right. And so I'm really kind of looking at that and really understanding how important it is for harm reduction to influence culture. And I'm not really seeing that happen in a conscious way, in a strategic way at this point, but it's vital. And I say some of this stuff because, you know, I moved to San Francisco in 1986. And so I already, I've already been through an apocalypse. Right. And I didn't really kind of think I'd walk into another one, but here we are. And it becomes a sort of, the, even that kind of connection becomes sort of interesting because a lot of people keep on referring back to ACT UP and AIDS, which is, I, I think it's a, it's a pretty organic and natural thing to do. But one of the things that happened with HIV and AIDS is that it influenced culture, right? Um, artists were writing about uh, stuff, performances were happening, all of this stuff. And so, where and where's the harm reduction theater? Where's the harm reduction movie? Where's the harm, you know, where's the art? What's the stuff that we're, go where are the objects that we need 
in order to subvert the narrative. We have to make them. But as far as I know, uh, not enough artists are, 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 are necessarily making work that is about messaging. They might be making work and be a part of harm reduction. And in that context, yes, there, there are, is harm reduction art, but it's not necessarily focused in this direction. And I think it's something that's been missing. And it's one of the things that like, I just started to play with on Instagram. And um, it, it, it's been this curious thing to sort of evolve. And it, it seems that too seems to be getting a little bit traction, which is really uh, uh, a much needed um, uh, outcome, you know? Um, and so we're, we're just really interested in seeing how can we make harm reduction irresistible? Because that's what has to happen. Because we all know, you know, as harm reductionists, at some point, what happens, I think, for people who are passionate about harm reduction is that it, the, the light bulb goes off and you suddenly realize that you're standing in the truth, right? And that particularly in this time with all this sort of like fake news and, and where people even doubt the existence of truth, that this feeling of actually being able to be in the truth and understanding that we actually know how to do this, we know how to turn this around, we know how to win the war on prohibition, we can do this, but we have to start to visualize it that way. And one of the reasons why I say like visualizing winning is because until I started reading uh, Emergent Strategy and being influenced by Adrienne Marie Brown, and then taking that and being really influenced by um, visionary fiction, particularly Octavia Butler, um, I started to realize that I had never, I had in all my years, I never considered the idea that we could win, right? And the only way I know how to create that idea in my head is that it has to be fiction, right? Because it doesn't exist now. So I, I, that's another piece of HRH that we're trying to work with is how do we use story and narrative, not just to change the narrative that's already out there, but how do we use the tool of story and narrative to actually create a movement? And I think we're starting to make some headway with it. Um, it's still kind of like all jumbled in my head, but I'm taking little stabs at it here and there. And it's, and like, it's always surprising to me whenever I do something and it actually makes sense. <laughs> I'm in that club too. And, and I think what you're both doing is just so inspiring and doing on the ground action, underground syringe exchange, unsanctioned sites, maybe not, putting that out there <laughs> but basically um i just think it's really in incredible what's going on and um is there anything specifically you want to plug right now as, as we wrap up any we're going to put all the links to everything you're you're discussing in, in the show notes um is there any 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 final things you want to get out there I um, I do want to talk about reframe the blame a little bit. And like I said, hopefully Louise and I will be talking about this at a later date, but only because of what's going on in North Carolina right now with the death by distribution law that was introduced, which essentially says anybody who um, is involved with a death, like, you know, if you God, if they find drugs on me that match the stamp of my best friend that I'm going to be implicated and charged with murder. Um, this is already, we've already started, we're tracking how it's affecting calls to 911, Good Samaritan Law, 
Um, we here in Massachusetts, like I forgot to mention with uh, this chapter of NEU, um, I think I said it lightly, one of the things I do is respond to um, overdoses that happen in public housing, dorm rooms, because people are going to lose scholarships, people are going to lose their housing, mm -hmm. people lose their kids. That's already showing people can't call 911. We introduce induced homicide laws, we're done. Um, we've already seen a decrease in people calling 911 with the Good Samaritan Law, and states have Good Samaritan Law. Good Samaritan Law historically has not been trusted by people who use drugs and their family members, maybe uh, stranger bystanders may call, but because of the police interaction, um, there is has been a shift with police, um, you know, individually, like here in our town, we have the DART program, it, you know, it's good, it's got a few flaws, but you know, at least the police are not trying to arrest people. Um, but so Reframe the Blame, a quick overview, was born out of a conversation that Louise was having with her partner saying like, hey, I wouldn't want you to go to jail if I died of an overdose. We're consenting adults. Um, we, you know, drugs are purchased together. This is not the blame. And um, the, the law was created to go after high-end cartel and it's being used to pluck the lowest hanging fruit, which are, you know, usually drug users themselves that are either selling to um, supply their own habit or, or people that are just supplying friends and family. Um, what we created was called a do not prosecute order. Uh, it's not, it doesn't have any legal standing right now. However, it has gotten a lot of attention from, you know, everyone from you know, DAs have called to um, people's families, private lawyers saying, hey, I have a client who is being charged with murder. What can we do to make this solid? Um, it's even happening among our own harm reduction community right now where somebody recently died in the harm reduction community and they're going after their friend. Um, so we're asking, again, we turned it more to a feminist led because a lot of times the mothers are the ones who are targeted. Not it's you know you say parents, but it's really the mothers they go after, um, trying to channel their rage and grief into revenge. And revenge, like two lives for one, like now locking somebody up, is not revenge. And so what we're asking for, as drug users, like all too often our voices are ignored in life. That in death we want our wishes respected. And so the DNP says, if I should die, nobody can be charged in my death. Um, we've also asked people in recovery to sign them. It's funny, we've had a lot of people in recovery because they realize that should they go out and use, they're at such high risk to overdose. Um, we've, we're, all, we're talking about the fact that, you know, our drug supply in this country is poisoned, um, that we're asking for a public outcry because if it was any other community being affected, there would be like, you know, the CDC would be coming in, you know, there would be national emergencies. It's, but because this is secondary class of people being affected, no one essentially cares. So the DNP was just the first start in that. And like, we're really, it's interesting you brought up like the voice of parents. Um, we're really trying, we're going to be releasing the second phase of Reframe the Blame. And, you know, we don't want to give it away yet, but it involves mothers so and women. Um, so definitely big plug for that. Yeah, totally. LB? Yeah, just that um, uh, I, I, cannot, uh, I cannot stress enough how I think the new wave of harm reduction is wholly dependent 
on harm reductionists really taking collaboration to heart and really, really taking it in, really understanding what it means to collaborate, not just like showing up at a meeting together, um, but actually really truly working together, actually really truly caring about each other, actually really respecting each other. Because one of the things that was shocking to both Jess and I when we first started was how po folks who are relatively new in harm reduction, some of the folks that we met that were relatively new in harm reduction, thought they already, that, 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 that they knew what it was, that they, they get it. And so what, what that made really clear to us was that there's a lot of the profundities and the, and the lessons that can be learned from practicing harm reduction that people were missing. And the fact that people were reluctant to learn was shocking to us. The other piece being also that um, there are a lot of people who have things to teach who aren't teaching, right? And that um, that needs to happen. But ultimately, the one thing that I wanna say is that in terms of creating movement, obviously people's egos are going to become involved, but it's really, really important for folks to understand when their ego is getting in the way and when it's benign and when it's helpful. And uh, that requires self-reflection. That requires um, self-conscious understanding of action and consequence, which to me is a foundational core of actually practicing harm reduction well. Um, and it's something that most people in the field do not consider. And I always make it really clear that working in harm reduction does not mean that you practice harm reduction. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I want to reiterate what Zach said, that the work you do is really inspiring. Um, it is one thing to humanize drug users. It's to say, hey, you're using drugs. You're a person. But it's a different thing entirely to empower drug users. Yeah. Um, you guys are giving people resources to be represented in society. And I think that's really powerful. So thank you so much for talking to us. Thank Pleasure. you. Thank you for asking. <laughs> uh, uh, so Jess Tilly and Albie Park of the New England Users Union. And HRH 413, Harm Reduction Hedgehogs 413. Okay, thank you all so much. And again, we'll link to all your incredible work for listeners. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Morath, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Our co-producer is Aaron Ferguson, and our theme music is by Glassboy. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. If you like the program and you want to support us, there are a few ways you can help. Tell a friend about us. Most podcasts become popular via word of mouth. Or give us a decent rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, you can become a patron at Patreon.com Narcotica where you'll get access to exclusive bonus content and help us pay our bills a little bit. We are so grateful for the people that make this program possible. We want to stay ad-free, and you guys help us do that. Thank you so much. If you want to send us a suggestion, tell us about using DXM to time travel, or just want to say hi, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com. That's all for now. Take care.